Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. In this two-part episode, I explore Gallipoli and the stories of two men who played a small part in helping Australia to forge its national identity. In the first decade of the 20th century in Britain, inflation coupled with low wages and job cuts among the working classes led to widespread strikes and discontent. It was something Chancellor Lloyd George sought to address in his 1909 budget, as explained here by Prime Minister Herbert Asquith. From the duty of providing adequately for the defence of the Empire, from the grant of pensions to the aged, and from our determination to supplement and extend this in a large policy of social reform. The budget offered future hope of respite, But for those seeking more immediate relief from the financial deprivation, there were opportunities for work in the Commonwealth of Australia. In 1910, Henry Edward White, my great-uncle, an unmarried, 20-year-old painter and part-time soldier from St. Marylebone in London, joined hordes of his countrymen in setting sail for Australia in search of a better life. Like many new arrivals in New South Wales, He found work in the burgeoning mining industry. But what kind of society would a young Englishman have found in Australia at the turn of the last century? To answer this question, I turn to an expert, historian Ian Hodges, from the community engagement team at the Australian Department of Veterans Affairs. More than 90% of Australians at the time were either born in the United Kingdom or their parents had been born there. So there was an intense loyalty to Britain. There was no Australian citizenship at the time. You were a British subject rather than Australian citizen. That didn't come into being until decades later. So there was a a very strong feeling among most Australians that they were in fact British, but they'd been put on the other side of the world, if, if you know what I mean. So there were British people occupying a land on the far side of the world, but always for most of the population with that kind of British sensibility, looking to Britain, many referred to it as home, mm-hmm. even if they'd never been there. Uh, the education system was based on a British model and young boys, for example, the boys who would grow up to join the Australian Imperial Force and go to the war were raised on tales of British martial glory, the sort of things young boys would have read magazines like one for example called chums which were just full of of the sort of tales of british colonial conquests and british military endeavor around the world everything they did was sort of geared towards understanding themselves to be british and and i read um i think in a school magazine i could be wrong on what the source is but that there was a very widespread view that young australians had to prepare themselves 
to go to war for Britain. And to that end, many of them joined cadets, rifle clubs, the militia, all with a view that should Britain need them, they would be ready to defend Britain. One man seemingly inspired by the kind of militaristic nationalism Ian Hodges talked about was George Frederick Brond. Like Henry White, he was born in England before moving to Australia with his family in 1881. A talented sportsman, one-time clerk and businessman, he became involved in the military during the colonial era. But with Australia transitioning from colonial rule to a British dominion, I was curious what kind of military apparatus the fledgling nation had in place before World War I. Another expert, Brad Minera, senior historian and curator of the Anzac Memorial, provided me with the answers. We began as a British colony in the late 18th century, and each of the colonies around the periphery of the Australian continent developed their own defence forces. The British Army pulled out of... Australia in 1870, what that meant was that with the growing influence of other European powers in the Pacific and the tensions on the northwest frontier of India, particularly with the Russians, there was a genuine fear in Australia that we were under threat and without the British here, we needed to learn how to defend ourselves. And so each of the Australian colonies developed its own defence force. In 1901, all of the Australian colonies federated to become the Commonwealth of Australia. And so we then had to create our own defence forces. In 1903, we passed the Defence Act for the Commonwealth of Australia. And so what that meant was that we created the Australian Commonwealth military forces. Note It was not the Australian Army, it was the Australian Commonwealth Military Forces. What that meant was that there were a number of forces, some of them small and full of permanent soldiers, others large and full of part-time and volunteer soldiers, who were undergoing fairly elementary military training so that in the event of war, the British Empire could call on these people and they had basic training, but we weren't in a position where we could field a national army. We didn't have the logistic capability. We didn't have the administrative capability. We just had trained soldiers. And the British Empire was very happy with that. They didn't want Australia to develop an army. Australia didn't have a regular army until 1948. So after two world wars in the 20th century, each of the old colonies, now states of Australia, got to raise these forces of volunteers and part-time soldiers, partially paid soldiers, to form state-based militias, if you like. And this was the Australian Commonwealth military forces. So they had jobs, they had careers. Then in 1911, Lord Kitchener came to Australia, the British commander in the Boer War, and advised Australia that things, tensions in Europe were elevating to such an extent that it would be a good idea if we increased the number of trained Australians. And so we introduced conscription in late 1911 for 12-year-olds. So from the time you were 12 until the time you were 26, you had a part-time but compulsory 
military commitment. Australia, a country of nearly 5 million people, had quite a large body of people who had some small amount of military training. As tensions mounted in Europe, newcomer Henry White tried his hand at mining precious metals. He lived for a time in Castlereagh, a suburb of Sydney, as well as Coonamble, a small inland community now best known for its rodeos. His compatriot George Brown made a bigger splash, and by 1913 he was a renowned public figure and a member of the Legislative Assembly of Armidale. But events across the other side of the world escalated, and on the 28th of June 1914, Serb nationalist Gavrilo Princip assassinated Archduke Ferdinand. Austria declared war on Serbia, and a series of pre-existing military alliances ensured the involvement of the rest of Europe. On the 4th of August, 1914, Britain declared war on Germany, a nation that held territory just north of Australia in New Guinea, and to Australia's west in Tanzania. As a British dominion, Australia, along with other British overseas territories, was compelled to provide a force for the war effort. But despite heeding Kitchener's advice and bolstering its military, the Australians were not prepared for an overseas conflict, as Brad Minera explains. When the war came in 1914, Australia, like the rest of the British Empire, committed to sending a body of soldiers to help them fight alongside the French against the Germans. The problem was that the Australian Commonwealth military forces, this large body of trained soldiers, could not be deployed overseas. They could only be deployed for the defence of the Australian continent. So what that meant was we had to raise a second body of soldiers who were all volunteers for full-time service who could deploy anywhere in the world. And that was a force called the Australian Imperial Force. During the Great War, essentially, we had two armies, if you like, the Australian Commonwealth military forces at home and the Australian Imperial Force. And the crossover between the two is often very, very confusing. And each of the units within the Commonwealth military forces and within the AIF, the Australian Imperial Force, were state-raised, indeed, quite locally raised. I don't know whether you've come across the story of the British PALS battalions of 1914 to 1916, where Kitchener ran a recruiting program that encouraged groups of locals to join up together. So an entire parish, even a street or a business, all of the fit young men would join up together and they were guaranteed to go into the same unit. That was the same around Australia. Amongst the units of the Australian Imperial Force, there was this really strong sense of regional identity. The local politicians, the local aldermen, the local respected members of the community became the officers and the soldiers, the diggers, were the labourers, the, the, the artisans and so on. So it was a very feudal society. It was a very feudal army that created the Australian Imperial Force. One such politician turned officer was George Braun, who was tasked with forming a new battalion. The second battalion, George Braun's battalion, was raised in August of 1914. Braun was a local politician 
but in his part time, he was also had risen through the ranks of the Commonwealth military forces. So he could go from the Commonwealth military forces and retain his rank into the AIF. So no real practical military experience, uh, combat experience, but was an experienced part-time soldier. But he was also very well known in his community because he was a member of parliament. He had this extensive personal following. And so he was able to say, I'm going to go to war. The AIF was looking for trained leaders. And so he became an obvious choice to take command of a battalion. When he enlists a lot of people from his electorate and people from around the state of New South Wales follow him into the army and they come down to Sydney and they train at, at Randwick and then at Liverpool on these two big, rapidly established military training camps on the outskirts of Sydney. Henry White reported to a recruiting station in Randwick, New South Wales during the very first week after the creation of the Australian Imperial Force. Prior to moving to Australia, Henry White had served in the London Rifles, a kind of forerunner to the modern Territorial Army. His father William had been in the Royal Marines during the British incursion into Sudan. His older brother William Jr. was already listed in the British Army prior to World War I, and his brother-in-law was a Boer War veteran. With that kind of military pedigree, it's hardly surprising he enlisted. But as Ian Hodges explains... British expats like Henry had an additional incentive to enlist. A lot of people enlisted because they thought they'd get a ticket home to England and a chance to see, you know, family, family, friends, whatever. Coming up, the Aussie force set sail for Europe. If you're interested in World War I, while you're here, please check out my episode on its origins. On the 28th of June, 1914, a young Serb named Gravillo Princip sat outside a delicatessen in Sarajevo, reflecting on his role in a botched assassination attempt on Archduke Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. To his surprise, the intended target suddenly came back into view. This time, there would be no mistake. He calmly approached the car and fired two shots. One at Ferdinand, the other at his wife Sophie. Each proved fatal. This violent crime, which led directly to the outbreak of World War I, wasn't the act of a lone wolf gunman. It was just the latest and most devastating in a series of terrorist acts performed by members of the Serbian Black Hand. In this episode, I explore the shadowy group's origins, their activities, and how their ultimate dream was realized in 1918, though few of them were alive to see it. Whether motivated by patriotism or the desire to return home, Henry White and George Browns 
boarded the HMAT Suffolk, a commercial ship leased to the Australian government in November 1914. But as the conflict escalated in Europe, a number of factors ensured the ship would not make it to Britain, as Brad explains. They think that they are going to Britain to fight in Europe against the Germans. But all of the training camps in England are full. The first fleet leaves Albany and is crossing the Indian Ocean and they think that they're headed for the Suez Canal and then across the Mediterranean and on to Britain. What happens is that they offload them in Egypt because Egypt is a British colony uh, or a British protectorate. And so all of these soldiers that enlisted in August 1914, by December of 1914, they're suddenly marching through the desert in Egypt. They've come out of a late winter in Australia and suddenly they're in the Middle East trying to march through sand in heavy woolen uniforms. There's a whole range of problems with fitness and all that sort of stuff. But they learn the trade. Over the coming months in Egypt, they develop a fitness, they develop a cohesion, they really get to know each other very, very well. So they're really working as a coordinated unit Nevertheless, there isn't that level of combat experience that the British are able to call on where the British Expeditionary Force has veterans of the Boer War or veterans of the Northwest Frontier that they can call on as junior leaders. The AIF doesn't have that to that extent. The comparative lack of experience, but a desire to prove themselves as combat ready, was something that preyed on the minds of the Australians as Ian Hodges explained. There was an incredibly strong desire amongst the Australians to prove themselves worthy Britons, in fact, to prove that they were the equal of the British. And you have to remember also that about 15 years before, Australians had fought in the Boer War in South Africa. And in the final months of that war, Australia was federated and so there were Commonwealth troops in South Africa. So Australians and Britons had had recent experience of serving together and to some extent knew each other and knew how that would look. But my understanding and my impression is that the British were just as interested in the numbers. With something to prove and a modicum of training, the Aussies were soon called into action, as Brad explains. While they're training in Egypt, the Ottoman Empire comes into the war and they shut the Dardanelles. The Dardanelles is a strait dividing Europe from Asia that crucially connects the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. The current conflict between Russia and the Ukraine is in part driven by a desire in Moscow to maintain access to this strait. And that's when there is a crisis for the forces that are trying to fight the central powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary, because they need to keep the Germans fighting on two fronts. It's impossible for the Germans to sustain a war on two fronts. And so the British and the French need to keep the Russians fighting the war in the east. And with the Ottoman Empire entering the war, the only, and, and with winter, northern hemisphere winter coming on, all of the North Russian ports freeze over. So the only route into and out of Russia is through the Dardanelles and the Black Sea. And of course, the Ottomans enter the war in November 1914, the beginning of the northern winter, and they close the Dardanelles. 
That means the Russians can't get the Ukrainian wheat crop out or the wool clip out, and they can't get British and French weapons in to sustain their war effort. So the British and the French realise that they must reopen the Dardanelles if they're going to keep Russia in the war for any length of time. And that's, that was the inspiration for the Gallipoli campaign. The Royal Navy thinks that they can do it in a heartbeat, so they race up from the Mediterranean and bombard the Turks. They believe that the Turks are ignorant peasants. If they um, attack the Turks with massive naval power, then the Turks will turn tail and run. They'll surrender and the, and the Dardanelles will be reopened. It was a strategy the British Navy had used some 50 years earlier against the Japanese. But it was naive to think the same would work against the powerful Ottoman Empire. They find the exact opposite. The attack by the British and French navies hardens the Turkish resolve. And so they then threaten the Suez Canal and they reinforce their defences of the Dardanelles. And so the British realise that if they're going to do something, they've got to do it quickly. They need to attack the Dardanelles in a combined operation. They've got to put boots on the ground. Who's available? The Brits and the French are fighting a war in Europe. Who's around to fight that, to put boots on the ground? Well, you've got this largely untrained force of Australians and New Zealanders training in Egypt alongside some French colonial troops and one only British regular division, the 29th Infantry Division. None of these forces have worked together. So, you know, the AIF is just getting to know each other, let alone work with the 29th Division and certainly no idea of how to work with the French. But this is the force that gets put together and thrown at the Dardanelles. As the troops set sail for Turkey, the two British expats would likely have been in close proximity despite a difference in rank. Braund was a lieutenant colonel, White a private. The young man from St. Marylebone had a musical pedigree. Reportedly, he had relatives involved in vaudeville, as well as an Australian cousin who was a famous yodeler, not something you hear every day. But the musical gene evidently extended to Henry, who was selected as a bugler. As such, he would likely have been kept in close proximity to Company HQ and Braund. They land on April the 25th, 1915. The landing is chaotic, but reasonably successful. But from there, it all goes to custard, you know. It's right. just, um, it, it just the whole, the system breaks down. And that's pretty indicative of a naval power like Britain. They command the seas. They can do an amphibious landing reasonably well. But once they get ashore, the wheels come off. So the Australian Imperial Force has one division training in Egypt. And beside that, there is a New Zealand and Australian division. And then there's the 29th division. So there's three British divisions, essentially, each of them about 15,000 soldiers strong training in Egypt, and they all hit the beach. The Australians land uh, halfway up the peninsula before dawn. The British land after sunrise at the tip of the peninsula. 
the plan is for the Australians to move inland and occupy the high ground, essentially providing an anvil force against which the British hammer force will crush the Ottoman defenders. And of course, none of that works because both forces get bogged down within a few kilometres of the beach, I guess a mile and a half of, of the beach uh, in the case of the Australians and about three miles in the case of the British and, and Indian troops. With the Australians, the Australian division lands first before dawn, about 4.30 in the morning, about 45 minutes before sunrise. And there, there are three brigades, I guess, if we're talking to Americans, an Australian brigade at the time is probably the equivalent of an overstrength American infantry regiment. And the first brigade is all from New South Wales. Four battalions, first, second, third and fourth battalions. Second brigade is from Victoria and the third brigade is from the Australia, the outlying states, the small population states like my home state, Western Australia, Queenslanders, South Australians, Tasmanians. It's the all states brigade that lands first at 4.30 and they arrive against minimal opposition and they move inland. As they are moving inland, Turkish opposition is getting stronger. Second Brigade lands at dawn, the Victorians, and they are trying to make sense of what's happened at the dawn landing because the divisional commander hasn't come ashore. So you've got each of these brigade commanders saying, well, you know, what do we do now? You know, the, the enemy opposition is getting stronger. Nobody under company level has got a map and the countryside is much more complex. Gullies and hills and a tangle of ridges, it's much more complicated than they had been led to believe. These guys have no military background and they've been training in the sandy deserts around Cairo. Suddenly, they're in scrub that is two metres high, about seven foot high, and the enemy strength is building. And somebody's firing live ammunition at them for the first time in their lives. And then about 10.30 in the morning, the first brigade, the third wave ashore, arrives. And that's when George Braund and the New South Welshman of the 2nd Battalion land at Anzac Cove. What do they find? They find wounded and dead on the beach coming down from the ridges. There's no command and control. They cannot get any news on what the hell is happening. And they can hear the sound of battle on the ridges that they can't see getting louder and louder and louder. So Braund then leads his companies of, of infantry soldiers off the beach, up and over that first line of ridges and down a gully, a wide valley called Shrapnel Gully. We're talking bushes that are chest height or overhead height. Everything's covered in prickles and thorns. You know, they can hear battle in the background, but the situation is chaos. The Turks are now starting to realise that the Australian landing is not a feint. And so they're delivering well-aimed shrapnel fire into the valley. So these guys are getting hit by shrapnel shells ex exploding over their heads. And the ground is getting steeper and steeper and steeper. They get to the end of Shrapnel Gully 
and they've got to climb a very steep hill up onto the ridge line before they can even get an idea of where the third and the second brigade is fighting and what the hell has happened on that landing. And again, the divisional commander still hasn't come ashore. And so you've got these three brigade commanders talking to each other going, what do we do now? You know, where do we go from here? Our orders say, get to the third ridge and then climb the high ground on our left. They're on the second ridge. They can see some of their blokes have pushed forward to the third ridge, but they know that the Turks are advancing two different Ottoman forces, one coming up from the south and the other coming over the heights of the the range from the north. They're getting caught in between. The three brigade commanders are looking at each other and saying, do we keep pushing on and then try and climb the heights? The commanders of the 1st Brigade from New South Wales and the 2nd Brigade from Victoria, part-time soldiers. Commander of the 3rd Brigade is an English Brigadier General. So they look to him for advice and he is the sort of bloke that can't make a decision. He's just, you know, he's a Boer War veteran. He's the sort of bloke, Sinclair McLagan is his name, a Scotsman, where he'll be given a job and he'll say, oh, we can't do that. And if his soldiers achieve the job, he'll take all the praise. And if they don't do it, he'll say, I told you so. And this is the bloke that these two inexperienced but enthusiastic Australian brigade commanders look to for advice. And he says, I don't think we can push on to the third wave. So they dig in on that second line of ridges and they leave the blokes that have pushed onto the third line of ridges. One after another, the Turks overrun those positions and those blokes are dead. In fact, it's not until the 1919 or the 1920s that they even try and recover their bodies. And so that's the environment that George Braund and the 2nd Battalion is stepping into just before lunch on the first day of the landing. They're getting to the second ridge and they're seeing little pockets of soldiers all over the place engaging the enemy, but no coordination. And they can see units from their own brigade that have obeyed their paper orders to push onto the third line of ridges and they're watching them in the distance getting overrun, one pocket of soldiers after another. It it must have been absolutely heartbreaking. And someone like George Braun is thinking, there was nothing on my weekend training exercises up in the Hunter Valley that prepared me for this. There is nothing in my full-time training in the sands of Egypt that prepared me for this. What do I do? He then gets his soldiers to dig in, essentially an all-round defensive position, on that second line of ridges and for the next few days indeed for the rest of the week he's trying to work out exactly how many soldiers he's got left after the landing how many people he's lost to ottoman shrapnel fire and sniper fire and try and find the companies that may have got lost in that valley and the journey from the beach to the second line of ridges 
so that he can bring all his soldiers together and then find out what the hell his neighbours are doing, what the brigade's planning to do and what the division's doing. That first week on Anzac is just chaos. Next week in part two of Gallipoli. Really enthusiastic and courageous soldiers with a minimum of training, no combat experience and an absolutely ferocious enemy. It's just a recipe for disaster. This is the tragedy that killed your relative, indeed killed mine and George Broad. Well, stone the flaming crows, it's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.